Welcome to The Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. Over the past several months, as stories of the reading wars have been circulating in the news once again, one thing has become clear. Many teachers are not that familiar with the science of reading. But the problem does not end there. For the science of how students learn to read is just one part of the broader science of how students learn. Today's guest, Dan Willingham, is a cognitive psychologist from the University of Virginia, whose research concerns the application of cognitive psychology to K-16 education. In his latest book, Outsmart Your Brain, Why Learning is Hard and How You Can Make It Easy, in stores on January 24th, Dan lays out practical, thorough, scientifically grounded guidance for students and teachers on everything from improving note-taking and reading to dealing with procrastination and anxiety. In addition to being a professor at UVA and the author of Outsmart Your Brain, Dan writes the Ask the Cognitive Scientist column for American Educator magazine and is the author of Why Don't Students Like School, When Can You Trust the Experts, Raising Kids Who Read, and The Reading Mind. Dan, welcome to the report card. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. So Dan, what's the story of how you came to write this particular book? The problem that this book tries to address is one I've been interested in for a long time. What was striking to me was that the expectations about the extent to which students should be able to regulate their own learning, control their own learning, is close to zero when kids are in preschool. And that's obviously appropriate. You, you don't expect that a preschooler is gonna like bring a bunch of learning strategies to learning shapes and colors. At the same time, when kids graduate from high school, the expectations are very high. Kids are expected to know how to deal with distraction. They're expected to know how to commit things to memory, you know, prepare for tests, read complex, reading on their own and be resourceful if they're not understanding it. But we know from data, so we've got this huge change between preschool and high school graduation in terms of what's expected of kids. Uh, But kids are never taught how to do any of these things. And we know that from surveys of college students. When you ask college students, how do you study and where did you learn to study that way? Typically, about 80% or more of the college students will say, well, no one ever taught me how to study. I just kind of figured it out on my own. Um, And that's what prompted me to write the book. Uh, I thought there was a real gap there that needed to be filled. I mean, that is a real gap, one that I was struck with right out of the gate, right? I mean, it's a pretty bold claim, right? Well, we teach kids a lot in, in high school and college, particularly starting in sort of middle school. We teach them a lot of content. We teach them a lot of subjects. We don't necessarily teach them how to learn. So kind of to back up a little bit, why do you think that is? I mean, there's something in the structure of schooling that's more focused on content-centered instruction and less in explicitly building learners. Well, I think there are two problems. One is that it's not obviously anybody's job. So if you, you know, if a child's not, hasn't learned how to read, or if a child doesn't know any math, you kind of know who to go to and say, hey, what, you know, what's going on here? Um, But it's not obviously the province of any one person to teach them strategies to uh, know how to study, how to take notes and all the rest of it. The second thing is that it's even more complicated because what you would ideally like is for this instruction to kind of keep pace with demands. So when should kids be taught how to study? Well, presumably, whenever it is you first start introducing quizzes into the curriculum, right? And that may be very different than when other types of study skills come online. So you really need to be thinking in terms of the broad curriculum and coordinating across grades. Uh, and that's that's a pretty challenging thing to do. And another part of that is that there currently is not a study skills curriculum that anybody can just take off the shelf and adopt. I certainly get how when no one's assigned the duty, the duty may not get assigned. Let me ask you where this book sort of comes from, from your perspective, right? I mean, you're a cognitive researcher, psychologist, you're a teacher, and you've been a student. Uh, Obviously, it takes quite a bit of being a student to get there. If you were to give a breakdown, what percent of this book comes from your cognitive science background? 
your teaching background and your own experience as a student? Well, that's an interesting question. And it's, it's one, as someone who tries to take measurement seriously, giving measurements in this context makes me extremely uneasy, but I'll, I'll take a whack at this, uh, at answering this question. I generally think what the job that I've taken on, what, what I try and do is to bring findings from cognitive psychology to practical matters in classrooms. And so they, they really do get munged together. I think you can't simply take findings from the laboratory and drop them into classrooms. That's pretty clear. And then likewise, sort of ignoring the lab doesn't make any sense. So it, it's always inevitably some combination of the two. This book is the first one I've written that's really directed towards students, uh, primarily rather than teachers. So I think I was very much trying to take students' perspectives into account. I was thinking a lot about conversations I've had with my own students uh, and with other teachers uh, about their students over the years and the how students think about things, the problems they face, and so on. In the book, and I want to make sure that people understand that the book, you know, it does relate the cognitive science behind these things, but there's a lot of your experiences with your own students shot through it. It's kind of practical. It's very grounded. But it's not the kind of book that you just kind of read through, right? In many ways, it's like a reference book because you have chapters laid out for specific subjects and you don't have to read it front to back. And that may not be what many students or teachers reading it might be expecting. And I'll just say, I think it's useful to both groups. But in the chapter on reading difficult texts, you press teachers to help students to think about, you know, how should I approach this text and what should I learn from this text before they read it? So... It's your book, Dan. How yeah. should folks approach this text and what do you want them to learn from it? Oh, yeah, you, you went meta on me. To go back to what you said earlier uh, a moment ago about the book, I think that's absolutely right. You can, you can almost think of it as sort of a handbook or something. It is divided by tasks. Uh, and that's very self-conscious because uh, it's one of the things I learned from my students who would, who would come into me frustrated with their progress in my class. And then in talking with them, almost always their solution is, well, I need to study more. And by study, what students meant is I need to be better at committing things to memory. And I would always say, you know, hold up. It, it could be that part of your studying is fine. And like the problem is your notes aren't very good. Or the problem is you're doing a good job of committing things to memory, but you're just quitting too soon. And that, that's really a problem of assessing what you know. You think you know it, but you're actually not quite done. And so that's the way the book is laid out is by by tasks, sort of what, what it takes to take good notes in a lecture, how you can understand a complicated lecture and so on. Um, so in that sense, just as you say, you can really pick and choose and, and figure out the, the problem that, you're, that you wanna work on most. And so that's the way I encourage people to approach my book, as you say, sort of like the goal you should have in mind is figure out what is it I need to work on and then let's look at that chapter and uh, get some ideas. And for each chapter, the idea, they're usually between five and seven or eight tips that you can try and enact. So the front end of the chapter will have a little bit of the psychology that underlines the process. And then there are tips that capitalize on that psychology. And there are more than any one person is likely to want to use exactly so that you can pick and like find one that uh, you feel comfortable doing and seems to work for you. Yeah, it's interesting. At the end of the chapters, I think it's important to note for our listeners, there's also, uh, hey, here's notes for instructors on how instructors should apply these, because obviously part of the conceit of that central argument, you should help the kids learn how to learn, is um, how they should apply this. And I, I do kind of go meta with that question, but I really think that actually reading the chapters pushes students to do something that just typically they don't do. You said, hey, uh, a lot of students are like, well, I just need to try harder. I just need to work harder, whatever the case is to be improved. But if you're a student reading a chapter on how to learn from a lecture, well, they actually think about, well, what am I doing here? Like, what what is the task that I am doing here as opposed to being passive? And just the process of actually thinking through, like, what am I about to do? And therefore, how should I organize my brain and my attention 
and uh, the way I interact with books or the lecturer or so forth should reset a little bit of those expectations for students. And that's what I found particularly helpful and also a little bit absent from a lot of the discussion that you hear about in terms of just general teaching and learning. There is definitely a, um, a sensibility throughout the book that, yes, students are responsible for a good part of their learning. And the aspect of education that you refer to, I think, is, is a great example of that, which is listening to a lecture. And a lot of times you'll hear people say, oh, that's a passive form of learning. It's really not a passive form of learning. Listening, especially when you're listening to a well-organized lecture, is very challenging. You're listening to new content that's unfamiliar to you. And it's also uh, typically going to be structured. And it's structured in a way that's different than the way conversations are structured. They're different than the way narratives are structured. Lectures tend to be structured hierarchically, and that's very a very sensible way to structure a lecture. It's a good organization, but it's also challenging for the student to uh, sort of pick apart and appreciate what that structure looks like. And it's vital that they do that because there's information carried in the way that the lecture is organized. So when we think about sort of student responsibilities gets at what you were saying before. I think that students can at times be kind of passive. And I mean, you know, students are human beings just like anybody else and they get tired or whatever. And so it's easy to see when you walk into an auditorium with 350 seats to sort of feel like you're attending a performance and you sit down and you sort of wait for something to happen, which is the way you watch a movie or a play. Well, movies and plays are structured to entertain, and they're meant to be easy for you to understand and appreciate, and lectures are not. So yeah, that is an undercurrent of this book, is this is, this is hard. Like, if you want to succeed at this, anybody can improve, right? Everybody can get better at this, and everyone can, I would go so far as say, everyone can do well, but that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. So Dan, earlier we talked about why in schools is there not sort of a better structure for explicitly teaching students how to become better learners? But I think there's another piece in here. And so in the introduction, you talk about the shift in your own career, right? It's linked to this talk that you were going to give to a large group of teachers on cognition and learning. And you kind of came into it thinking it might be a bust because they all know this stuff and they know the cognitive science. And I'm just going to read a little bit here. You, you write, but to my considerable surprise, the talk was a success. Teachers didn't know the content, even though it covered material you'd probably take in the very first course on learning. Furthermore, they saw it not as abstract, but as useful in their classrooms. My career changed course. I thought teachers could benefit from knowing what scientists have figured out about how people think and learn. So I started writing articles and books that explained it. And I think Outsmart Your Brain isn't exactly specifically targeted to teachers, but it raises this question, why it would yeah. be. And so many teachers just seem to not really understand the science of learning that one would hope would fuel their day-to-day -day practice. Yeah, I'll start with a caveat, which is that there, you know, there's not an empirical answer to that question. Uh, there are, as you know, many, many programs of teacher education in the U.S., and there's a lot of variability. That said, here's my, here's my guess at sort of what the central tendency of many of these programs are. I think many of the programs do teach teacher candidates about human learning, but there are two problems with the way they teach it. One is that they teach it as you would teach it to future researchers rather than future practitioners. So they provide sort of an overall overview of the field and they teach big theories in human cognition. So they teach Piaget, they teach Vygotsky, both of whom have been dead for decades. They are giants in the field. If you are a, going to be a researcher in child development, you absolutely should know who they were and, and what their theories are. Uh, but the theories aren't contemporary anymore. And if you look at the textbooks, there will sort of be two or three pages on Piaget, and then there's two or three pages sort of undercutting a lot of Piaget's findings and explaining. Like the, the textbooks are actually, you know, 
the ones that, the ones that I've seen on child development, they're written by very good scholars uh, and they're not inaccurate at all. But you come away, if you're a teacher candidate, you come away with these varied perspectives on learning. You get behaviorism, you get social constructivism, you get a cognitive perspective. And I think what you would be left with is the idea, these people really don't know what what's going on with human learning. There are all these different theories and ideas, and it's interesting, I guess, uh, but there's not really anything known that's very practical. The second problem is that there's no follow through. So when these courses are offered, they're usually the kind of course you would take in your first or second semester or quarter. And then I suspect that content gets dropped. So if you do learn something about human learning, you won't see it again, you know, if you're going to be doing literacy for adolescents, you're not going to get instruction where it's like, remember what you learned in that foundational course. Now, here's how that plays out in teenagers when they're uh, struggling to read. And then the same kind of thing for elementary math, because it's the, the same principles are going to look different uh, in that subject matter with that age group. Uh, and so one of the things you know about learning is if you take one course and never revisit the content, most of it's going to be forgotten. Uh, and so I think that's what that's what happens. That's why most teachers don't know it. So Dan, I want to be polite here, but that sounds like a pretty big problem. I mean, <laughs> you know, understanding sort of the breadth of the base, the Piaget and, and so forth, but it's the up-to-date application of why are we doing this? How does this interface with how students actually learn? What is more and less productive seems to be what should be part of the discipline. How would you go about ameliorating this in some sense? I mean, just give us a, a handle for how to think. How would we want teachers to embed our cognitive, scientifically-based approach to how kids learn to their practice in schools? I mean, I think that it's important to recognize the cognitive piece is one part of how children learn in school. It's not everything, but I do think it's valuable for teachers to know. Cognition doesn't tell you anything about the emotional lives of children. It tells you next to nothing about the motivation of children. It doesn't tell you anything about how kids differ. The cognitive perspective really focuses on how children are the same, the, the mechanisms of learning and attention that are the same. And so all of these things, there may be other disciplines that can contribute something to those other parts. But a lot of it, I think, ends up being a knowledge and experience that, that teachers pick up in the classroom. But all of that said, uh, what I've argued for is that you want there to be a, a sort of model of the learner in the teacher's mind. And this is uh, an idea that's not original to me. Educational researchers have been writing about this for many years. The model of the learner just means like you have a sort of coherent view of what kids are like. And teachers, pre-service teachers have that before they take their first class in teacher preparation. Um, they already have beliefs about kids and what kids are like. Uh, and those beliefs are going to change through their training, and then they change still more once they're in practice. So to come back to what your, where your question started, what I think the role of cognitive psychology should be is informing that mental model of the learner that every teacher has anyway. Honestly, I think I'm, I'm fairly modest about what I think cognitive psychologists should be confident enough about in our own knowledge to tell teachers, hey, we really think you should pay attention to this. We think, we think we're really onto something here. But for those few things that meet that criterion, yeah, I think, uh, I think it's important and I want teachers to take it seriously. So let me ask you about the prototypical teacher who sort of objects to this and says, well, look, you know, all kids are different. They learn in their own ways, and you can't just give me a, a narrow set of prescriptions from your little experiments and tell me how to shape my instruction. And, you know, there's something to that, I'm sure. But I guess the question at bottom is, how much commonality is there across learners in the science of learning? 
So, you know, we certainly wouldn't say, well, they're all widgets. So if we just stamp them thusly, we will have improvements. But on the other hand, we don't want to say there's not enough commonality to make a prescription. So just how would you characterize the applicability of the things that we have learned and how far it goes across kids who are, of course, very different? Yeah, I mean, in these circumstances, I think it's useful to immediately eliminate the extremes. And you eliminated one, which is every child's identical. They're all widgets. You can do exactly the same thing. The other extreme, I think, can also be eliminated, which is every child is completely different, which would indicate that your experience as a teacher is useless. And that if you've had 20 years in the classroom and you meet child number 5,832, all of that experience goes out the window because who knows anything? Nothing's predictable about this child now. So the question then is what's consistent across children and what can you expect to be different? Uh, And this is where I think cognitive psychology does offer something useful. The most important differences among children lie in what they know when they come into the classroom. And that is very varied and very unpredictable and has profound consequences for what the child is able to do, what they're going to be able to understand, what they're going to learn quickly, and what they're going to struggle with. The other difference among children obviously lies in what they're interested in. And who knows where that comes from? I mean, part of it is in their knowledge, but we have greater and lesser curiosity about different topics and where that comes from, who knows? But then there are consistencies as well. And when you think about it, like when you talk about just the raw process of learning, like what is it that is, uh, if you're trying to commit something to memory, uh, or if you're trying to understand something, why should there be so much variability across brains, right? You wouldn't say like, well, you know, I know how my digestive system works, but God knows what's going on with you, Nat. You know, it's like completely, right? It's like, well, all of our, like, we all have a circulatory system. We all have a digestive system. We all have a central nervous system. And there's reason to expect that there are going to be principles that are true across individuals within the central nervous system, just as there are in these other systems as well. And that's what my field is all about uncovering. So, Dan, what about progress along these lines? So you talked about this talk you gave, I don't know when it was, 10 years ago or, or more. And you've been writing the Ask the Cognitive Scientist column for some time. How much progress do you think the field has been making on sort of internalizing cognitive science and applying it to classroom practice? I mean, have we been making strides in this? Is it slow going? Do you not notice much progress at all? I don't trust my intuitions on this very much because this is this is like what I have devoted myself to. So I know that I'm hoping to see progress and I'm hoping I'm wanting to believe that the, you know this work I'm doing is gaining some traction. Now, that said, that is my impression. Um I do feel like there are more people talking about cognition in education than there were when I said that talk was in 2001, by the way. Um, So it's been 20 years and I do feel like there's headway. That said, there's not, you know, objective measures that I know of. uh, So I'm uncertain. So there's a lot of talk about the science of reading right now. It's almost become a proper noun. You don't hear so much about the science of math, Is that because, well, there is a well-formed science of reading, but we don't know as much about math? Or is it just that we haven't had sort of a set of public movements in that era for the science of math to get a proper noun? Again, like thinking about metrics, would you say, like, do we know as much about math as we do reading? God knows. We certainly know some things, um, and they're, they're certainly... Some things we know about how children learn math that could be implemented that are not currently being implemented. And then in terms of principles of memory, as you find and outsmart your brain, there's work to be done there as well. You know, with reading, as you well know, there there can be a faddishness to this sort of adoption and a feeling of this is the flavor of the month. And then what you typically get is unrealistic expectations about what's going to happen. 
I mean, in the science of reading, you can see that the situation is absolutely ripe for that because there is uh, there. And, and this is, uh, I think, perhaps a fair criticism for those, myself included, who've advocated for greater inclusion of scientific thought in reading instruction, that there's been a lot of focus on a relatively uh, small set of areas and reading is much bigger than that. Emily Hanford is really focused on phonics and I'm not knocking her for that. I mean, that's typically what journalists do. They get, you know, they don't try and do a, an entire field. They take a decisive aspect and explore it in depth. Uh, but that can leaves her open to the criticism that, well, you just think there's nothing to reading but phonics. And from that grows unrealistic expectations that if you fix phonics, every child's going to be a great reader. Uh, and of course, that's not true. So when we think about the greater use being made of scientific findings in math and in other fields, I don't know what the answer is in terms of how to approach it, but I know that it's a problem because science can become a fad just like anything else is a fad. And it becomes learning styles or it becomes multiple intelligences or it becomes 21st century skills. It's something everyone talks about for five years. And then everyone says, well, we tried that and nothing happened. So Dan, my son, Charlie, is going to get this book pretty soon, just so you know. He's in high school and uh, can always use help on how he, he really needs two copies, but uh, that's okay. That. <laughs> uh, but I've saved it to this. So if, if students are listening, they have to listen to 30 minutes of Ed Policy Talk before they get to the things that specifically point to them. Oh, I'm sure they hung in for there for that. But okay. for students that might uh, be listening or parents listening in their stead, the Outsmart Your Brain title, that means something. Why should students take note of uh, what's right there in the title? Yeah, the premise on the title is that I was very struck by the increase in demands from preschool through high school um, of, of children's ability to regulate their own learning, and then that th this is never taught in schools. But when you look at the strategies that students use, there's a lot of commonality. That was also very striking to me. Well, if no one's teaching them to do it this way, how come most students, when you ask them, how do you study, they say, well, I, I was reading, I read over my notes and I read over the textbook. And when you ask them, how do you know that you're done studying? They say, well, I kind of test myself. Why do they all land on the same strategies? And the answer is that they all uh, veer towards strategies that feel like they're working in the moment and also aren't very difficult. Those strategies sometimes are effective. Frequently, they're pretty inefficient. They're not completely horrible. So the analogy that I draw uh, in the introduction is, uh, suppose you're trying to get stronger and you want to be able to do a lot of push-ups. Uh, and suppose you've got a friend who's doing this and you uh, go to watch your friend train and he's doing push-ups up, push on his knees. And you say, this is stupid. Like why, if you want to be strong and be able to do a lot of push-ups, you should be practicing regular push-ups. Uh, in fact, you should be practicing really difficult push-ups, like where you launch yourself off the floor and clap. And your friend says, yeah, a couple of people told me that, but those are really hard. And like, I could barely do any of those. And look, when I do them on my knees, I can do them really fast and I can do a lot of them. And a lot of students use study strategies that are the mental equivalent of push-ups on your knees. Push-ups on your knees feels in the moment like it, things are going great uh, and uh, it doesn't feel that hard. And so it feels like a good strategy. Uh, but of course, you need challenge in order to uh, improve in the long term. So outsmart your brain is basically saying you need to not do the mental equivalent of push-ups on your knees. That's what your brain is going to tell you to do. And the equivalent of that, just to see if I've learned from my reading, might be when you're reading a text, how do you actually make sure that you're learning from it? One student's gut reaction might be, well, I highlight it. I'm going to highlight the important parts. And well, actually highlighting might not be that useful. It's fairly easy and it's a little bit active. So your brain might feel like it's doing work that's going to help, but down the line, it might take something harder, like jotting down notes or summaries of what you have read so that then you go through the mental manipulation of what you have read and you write something down that you can review briefly later. 
that's going to be more work, but it's also going to be more productive and you're going to learn better over the long term if you develop those strategies. Am I getting this right? That's that's exactly right. And and the one thing that I would add to that is that the tendency is to approach the uh, the task of reading difficult academic material the way you read anything else, right? So there, we talked before about the importance of setting a goal, doing a little bit of preparation before you tackle the read. What am I? What am I supposed to get out of this? What do I? What am I expecting to learn? What should I know by the time this is over? Uh, we know from uh, reading research that that ha- having a different orientation changes the way that you read. Uh, but that's not the way you and I read, you know, a novel any or light nonfiction. We just sit down and start reading. Uh, and that's what students typically do with a textbook, right? So very parallel to what I was saying before about a lecture, right? When I'm, when I'm watching a movie, I don't like think, okay, like, let's really gear up here. We're really going to, you know, this, this is going to be hard work, but I'm game for it. I got to make sure I'm not tired. I got to make sure I'm not hung over. Like I go to a movie exactly when I am tired or hung over. So I don't have to think very much. Right. But that's not the way you want to show up at a college lecture. So Dan, we do a section on this podcast called grade it. Are you ready? Yeah, it sounds like I'm going to be terrible at this, but I'm game to try. IQ. Well, for scientific reliability, I'd probably give it an A. For interpretation by the public, probably C minus or D plus. Fair enough. Group assignments in high school. Uh... I would say uh, mostly, again, there's so much variability, it's very hard, but probably B minus. And the, the big problem is that uh, there's, uh, I think that the common mistake is the feeling that if you have students participate in groups, they learn how to be a group member. So there's not enough instruction of here's what it means to be a good group member and sort of slowly building that skill in low stakes environments before they're really expected to function effectively in a group. And it's funny because students know this, right? They know this group isn't working because that kid's yeah. doing all the work and we're yeah, tagging. This kid's over. letting me down. I mean, the, what, what kills me about this is adults know that most people in groups, like when you're on a committee, most people are terrible. There's that one person who never says anything, even though you know they're actually pretty sharp. The other person who doesn't know anything won't shut up. Like people on committees are terrible group members. And yet we think we can just put students into groups and that that's going to like teach them how to be good group members. Doesn't work that way. The usefulness of memory palaces. Uh, This may surprise you, but I would say C minus or something. Memory palaces. So this is something I mentioned briefly in the book. There are a number of memory books that are written by like memory champions. But the thing about memory competitions is they use non-meaningful information. And the reason they do that is that meaning and understanding is so powerful and so important to memory. So if you ask people in a memory competition to memorize the first two acts of Hamlet or something, the people who are already familiar with the play are going to have an easier time, right? That's obviously unfair. And therefore, what they do in memory competitions is they they shuffle a deck of cards and get people to memorize the cards in order. So memory palace is useful in those circumstances. It's useful for information that has no meaning. And that's not really what we want our students to be memorizing. I'm changing my grade. I'm going to say D minus. Audiobooks. Uh, A plus. I love audiobooks. Audiobooks allow us to enjoy literacy at times and places that we would not otherwise be able to enjoy literacy. Learning styles. F. And do I have to elaborate? <laughs> do I say why? Uh, because it is a theory with a, it's a family of theories uh, that does not enjoy any support, and yet it distracts people. And um, I don't I don't know that people act on it all that much. Uh, but it, and the other thing it's done is I keep being asked to write on it, and I swear I'm going to kill myself if I have to write on it one more time. I'm so tired of writing about it. 
So it may be a myth, but like, could it have some redemptive qualities if it encourages teachers to explain things in different ways? Um, it, it, I, in theory, sure. Um, and I've actually suggested this, that it can, uh, I think I said this in Why Don't Students Like School, that it can, it can offer different ways to think about content or think about lesson planning. You know, if you think about linear versus holistic, you can think, all right, this particular concept, what I've said is you should really be matching content to the different styles rather than individual students to style. So think about like this content I want to teach, should I do this with sort of an auditory presentation? Is it better visually? Is it kinesthetic? Is it, do I want to do it holistically, like the whole idea first or the uh, and the details second, or do I want to reverse that? All of that, I think, makes sense. I mean, yeah, you know, how how big a difference it would make, I don't know, but like that's the one way I can think of that it might be a useful tool. But, but I still give it an F. But clearly on a crumbling foundation. So yeah. uh, entrance exams like the SAT and GRE. Uh, I think those are different. When if we just say entrance exams, then the immediate and not very helpful answer is, well, is it a good exam or not, and is it? Even more important, is it being used as it was intended to be used? I still occasionally hear um, like there's an SAT cutoff for a scholarship or something. No one has ever, I mean, no one who knows anything about psychometrics, including the educational testing service, has ever said that you can use it in, in a cutoff fashion. So there's there's lots of poor uses of it. I do worry about the sort of blanket dropping of the SAT, because I think one of the functions it can serve is, and it's usually people are saying they want to drop it in the name of equity. And I think it's more helpful than harmful to equity. I don't know of any evidence that it discriminates uh, on the basis of gender or ethnicity or any other characteristic that you might be concerned about. Uh, and dropping the SAT seems to me to uh, uh, another psychologist, Chris Chabri, has pointed out, this is the one part of your application, your college application, you really can't game. Money doesn't help you. You, you. you can buy good references. You can essentially buy good grades by uh, paying for tutoring, by going to a school where your family is very important and, and uh, you've got influence there. Um, but you really can't buy your way into a good SAT score. And so uh, this, is a, this is turning into a large-scale experiment in equity, and I'm concerned about how it's going to turn out. Listening to background music while working? Um, probably a C. The, um, so background music has two effects simultaneously. Music is uh, autonomically arousing. It, it sort of gives you a boost of energy. Uh, so that's good, uh, but it's also distracting. And so whether it helps or hurts academic performance depends on how motivated the student was, what their state of arousal was, what their uh, motivation was to complete the work, how difficult the work, a host of uh, factors. That's why music is the one type of multitasking that has a complicated story. Every other multitasking story is simple, which is it, it detracts from performance. Okay, let's put that to the test. The educational benefits of chewing gum. Uh, yeah, again, mixed. Um, there, there's some data indicating that you get a little boost in concentration uh, and that it, there's a positive attentional effect. And in the book, I say, you know, I, I, I come down on, try it and see if it works for you. It may be a placebo effect. It, it, we just don't know yet. Uh, but there's enough positive data there that I thought it was worth mentioning. Last one, the potential for K-12 online learning. Not pandemic emergency learning, just what's the potential for large-scale online learning in K-12 grades? I assume that means in 2023. Yes. Uh, I think the, well, I'm supposed to give a grade, right? D plus. I mean, I think right now the, the potential is, um, is we have a lot of work to do. 
And in the long run, do you do you see that potentially rising or do you see permanent constraints on online learning that... Uh... I, think it's, I think it's very hard to predict. I mean, right with current technology, there's clearly a social element missing. And to me, nothing is makes that more clear than Zoom fatigue, which we all experienced. Uh, there's something about the vin- video monitor and the... Uh, the way and the way we typically use them, and also the audio signal, that there are elements of this that are degraded, and so social some of the social cues are missing, and so we are struggling to extract that information, and it costs us. Uh, and I think in you see that manifests in older children and adults as Zoom fatigue. In younger children, it, you know, we, we sort of assume they, they can't do this. They can't learn online because they're little kids. And part of that is true, that they're, of course, not as self-regulated as older kids are. But part of it, too, is that I think this is the way they express missing those social cues. All right. I have some other questions. This draws a little bit beyond the uh, the book, just generally. But first, a few that are a little bit more in the outsource your brain flow. Um, should we abolish live lectures for students? You know, a lot of times you'll hear people saying, well, you know, lecture is an outmoded teaching model and so forth. What do you think about the value of lectures from a cognitive science perspective? I think it's not, uh, I, I don't think it's strictly speaking a cognitive science, it, well, I can offer it from a cognitive science perspective. I don't think it's really a cognitive science question alone. I think eliminating, eliminating you, you need to think about the counterfactual. If you're eliminating lectures, what are you doing instead? And who's doing it? And how skilled are they in doing it? What I've argued is that a lot of the categories we use in educational psychology are really too broad. Sort of talking about whether tech is good or bad in education, talking about whether problem-based learning is a good idea. Problem-based learning is this enormous category. And you know, it's, it's kind of trivial to say, well, it really depends on how you do it. But that's really true. I mean, it's like it doesn't it doesn't make any sense to. And I think the same is true of lectures. Can lectures be deadly boring? And yeah, of course they can. And likewise, you know, the the things that are proposed in their stead, more inquiry based methods, those can be mishandled too. So I think that thinking in in terms of those absolutes doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So let me ask you about another thing that some folks will be critical, and you can probably offer the same critique of the question, but a lot of people will say, well, we don't want just kids to memorize things rotely. And I think everybody can say, yes, rote memorization itself is not that helpful. But how often do you think we confuse memorization with actually students building an information scaffold on which they can hang uh, many things that hide together and then get sort of a mental map? of a bunch of things. And I, I'm just trying to put boundaries around these two ideas because it seems like the rote memorization is easy enough to critique, but frequently we're not actually just doing rote memorization when we're learning large amounts of content. I ho- Yeah, I hope we're not. I, I, and I agree. It's very hard to find a defender of rote memorization. I think the rote memorization comes under attack so frequently because it's easy to understand that and we've all we've all had some experiences where you've memorized something you kind of know something but you don't feel equipped to do anything with that knowledge um, what's more difficult to appreciate and understand is the opposite which is trying to think in the absence of any background knowledge and this is something that adults who have a lot of background knowledge find very difficult to conceptualize. They don't realize the extent to which their skill in thinking depends on background knowledge. The science of reading has come up a few times in this conversation, and this is an aspect of the science of reading that I've been harping on for five or 10 years now, and Don Hirsch has been harping on for much longer. In Don's case, I hate to use the word harping because he's much more artful than that. But uh, there's 
excellent evidence that background knowledge really is the mainspring behind comprehension, language comprehension, oral language, as well as written language. So you're absolutely right. When we talk about kids learning stuff, uh, that's not irrelevant in the age of Google. You need knowledge in your head for cognitive processes that we value, like reading comprehension, like problem solving, like creativity. All of these have a very heavy component of knowledge in them. All that said, yeah, you absolutely want children to have experienced thinking. You don't want them just you know, learning historical content without ever learning to appreciate and also uh, dipping their toe into doing what historians do, analyzing documents, sourcing things, making comparisons, and so on. Same is true for, for the other disciplines as well. Kids need to know things and they need to practice doing things. Let me ask a distantly related question. I think you'll see the link. What do you think the cognitive value of teaching subjects like chemistry is when probably the vast majority of students are going to forget a lot of it, at least in their close at hand memory a year out? And many of them never really, you know, use at least the content that they are forcing themselves to learn to get a good grade in chemistry. Is that useful? Uh, I think it is. And I, I think we we drop it at our peril. I, I don't know that it's the, that that experiment's been conducted of just saying like, oh, you know what, screw it. You guys don't have to learn any of this stuff after all. Uh, but I think it would be a mistake to embark in that experiment. So there, there are two aspects to this. One is that this is a very common you know, observation by adults is like, oh, I don't remember any of that stuff anyway. And to some extent, first of all, they, they remember a little more than they think they do uh, because they're, they're not measuring in the most sensitive way possible. So if you take chemistry and then I, you know, 10 years later, give you some chemistry problems, I'm quite confident you'll do very poorly. If, however, you tried to relearn that chemistry content, you would be surprised by how much faster you learn it the second time even 10 years later. This is a measure called savings in relearning. Uh, and it's uh, the most sensitive measure of memory. I mean, actually some people in your audience may well have experienced this, not in chemistry. Foreign language is, the where, is where you most often experience it. Uh, personally, I took French in high school. And by the time I was a senior, I was like more or less fluent in conversational French, as long as my conversations were limited to things like who is that boy in the green bathing suit and other you know, useless French phrases you learn in class, right? Um, but I wasn't bad. And then I didn't have to take it in college, didn't think about it, and then went to Paris about 20 years later and really had forgotten all my French. But in seven days in Paris, I was back to probably about 80% of where I had been as a senior in high school, I guess. So relearning can be quite powerful. The second thing I want to point out is, yes, if you take one chemistry class and never take any more chemistry, you'll probably forget it. But like, why wouldn't you forget it? Of course, you're going to forget it, right? I mean, you, you have this one experience and never practice it again. So when we think like, well, if, you, if you're only going to take that one course and forget it, then what's the point? Well, if you don't take that one course you are closing yourself off to a lot of other future coursework. You're making a decision at age 14 or 15 that all kinds of coursework is just going to be eliminated uh, from possibility because you're assuming that this one course is going to be it. I think that's a very bad bet. And in fact, you could probably tell me more, uh, say more about this than, than I would, but educational systems that do this sort of tracking uh, at a relatively early age are generally not very successful by economic metrics and also by sort of personal satisfaction metrics. So last question, how do you think that the U.S. should do education R&D differently? There's a, a wonderful set of studies by David Yeager, uh, University of Texas, on growth mindset. And what David did was, it's almost like epidemiological research. He did very large scale 
intervention uh, on growth mindset so that he could look at the not just the level of individuals, but also the level of classrooms and at the levels of schools and including, of course, all sorts of demographic information as well. And what that allows is to look at contextual effects that you, in calmer moments, you realize are bound to be important, right? So something like growth mindset, the idea that like, oh, you tell some kids some stuff about like intelligence and you can get smarter and so on, and then everybody gets smarter. It sounds to be too good to be true. And what David has pointed out in this recent set of articles uh, is, yeah, it, it isn't that simple. You get interactions with teacher beliefs. So if I think I can get smarter, but my teacher doesn't hold the same belief, like it, how long is it going to be before my optimism is kind of crushed, right? So I would think about funding more studies of that sort that are looking at promising interventions and are doing really large-scale nationally representative samples across many different schools so that we can look at the particulars of where things work and where things don't work in terms of the contextual variables. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus and special thanks to our guest, Dan Willingham. We'll include a link to Outsmart Your Brain and some of Dan's other work in the show notes. You can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, Take a minute to leave a review so other people will find the show. Send us your comments, topic suggestions, or questions to ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus.